0: And we're going to finish the chapter this evening reading from verse 32 down to the end of the chapter. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 to verse 37. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul, neither said any of them that all of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the prices of the things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need and Joseph, who by the apostles was certainly in barnabas which is being interpreted the son of consolation a levite and of the country of cyprus having land sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles feet and that's our reading so reading through acts to this point here's a rough summary of how we got to where we are so at the end of the gospels matthew mark luke john you then come to this section And the great events that the gospel is based upon are now done. And the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus is accomplished. He's raised from the dead, he's ascended back into heaven, and then you come to the end of the gospels. The good news, the facts about Jesus are all now historical. Now you come to this book of acts and what you have is the story of the spread of the message of the gospel so you have the facts the history in the gospels and now you've got the spread of that message as it goes global very local to begin with and then rapidly spreading through the then known world and that's the story of it that we're beginning to read from in acts and so you have the early christians and they have been waiting in jerusalem where they were at the crucifixion, and they were waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit to come as per the instruction of the Lord Jesus. And then you read in Acts chapter 2 that that event took place on what's called the day of Pentecost. And the Spirit of God descends upon the Christians. The gospel is preached. Thousands are saved. Thousands come to Christ and are baptised in water. And then the church, the first church, the church at Jerusalem, is established from Acts chapter two onwards. Then what you have is that you have the description of how they lived their lives after that took place, right at the end of chapter two. And so you've got this description of life, very succinct description, and the way that they were devoted to the Lord Jesus, they were devoted to each other, and they had very much a sharing attitude amongst them, <coughs> excuse me, amongst themselves. That had an impact in their community, in the city of Jerusalem. And you read about that at the end of chapter two, then it gets quite specific in the narrative. It goes from the, the kind of big picture, the kind of wide angle lens, right down to a a narrow uh, perspective. And you've got two of these disciples called apostles, Peter and John, who go up to the central religious building in Jerusalem, which is called the temple, and they go up there to pray. And what happens on their journey becomes the focal point of the narrative. So you've got, first of all, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, and then you've got his Ascension. Then it goes wide. Thousands of people come to Christ. Then it narrows in again two people peter and john and a miracle is accomplished of healing in chapter three there's a man lame from birth who's healed in the first 10 verses of the chapter you then have the response of the religious establishment to that now it's a jewish establishment in jerusalem but it is a religious response to what's taking place it's not good And those who had actually been responsible for the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus are heavily involved now in their response to this miracle and to the preaching that accompanied the miracle. And they were greatly annoyed is the expression in the Bible at what's taking place. No interest in the man, no interest in the healing, no compassion for the individual. Their principles, their authority, their establishment is more important than the welfare of an individual. So they ignore him and they worry about themselves. And they are worried because of two things. Peter and John are teaching the people and they're proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So there's a message that goes against their established orthodoxy and also it is bringing to the attention of the people and the popularity of the people two men that are not part of their establishment. So for these reasons they're greatly annoyed. They haul Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, the religious uh, governing authority including the high priest Annas and Caiaphas, who by the way were also present when the Lord Jesus was tried and crucified and the Sanhedrin have to settle themselves with threatening these two men to stop what they were doing and not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. And when we were doing this subject uh, at the Bible class, we pointed out and thought about the importance of the name of Jesus, all to do with authority and all to do with power. So they threatened and they send them on their way. What we saw last week was that when they are released from that, and this is, a, this is a time of great Adrenaline This is a time of great anxiety This is a time for these men Of pressure, of trial Their lives are under threat They've been threatened with violence By the authorities who Well just a few weeks before Had carried out the most violent act That they'd ever seen By almost tearing the Lord Jesus uh, Christ apart bit by bit They were so ferocious In their violence against him They ended up crucifying them to a cross. And these were the same men. So Peter and John come out of that environment and they go straight to their own people, the other Christians, straight to their own company. They report what's happened to them, what's being said. The Christians gather together. They pray not that they would have peace, not that the situation would change, but that they would have the boldness to not take a step back but to take a step forward into the situation and not away from it. That they would have boldness to proclaim the word of God, even although they were under threat of violence. Now that's where we got to last week. And what we saw last week was that the place was shaken. They were filled with the spirit of God and they spoke the word of God with boldness. So you've got this whole scene. It's quite dramatic, it's quite intense. And you have the word of God, the scriptures, being proclaimed, being preached with a boldness that was not natural. Not in the face of violence. Most people would shy away from that. Most people would seek an accommodation with the authorities. Most people would put their heads down until the thing died down. Not them. They they step emboldened by the spirit of God. They do that which is not natural but spiritual. They step towards instead of stepping back. And they preach the word with boldness. Now, the experience of the two apostles is a narrow experience. And now what you find is you go back to the wide angle. So you've got wide angle, narrow, and then back to the wide angle. This is the way that Acts is written. It's written with pace. It's written to keep you off balance slightly. It's not just a kind of... Uh, continual repetition of the same sort of thing and what we find is that it's as if the the camera steps back a bit again and i think it's interesting as well that you've got a kind of um, parallelism in the text as well in that in acts chapter 2 when you've got the filling of the spirit of god that is god the holy spirit who's come down and who is allowed to take control of individuals what you find after that takes place in Acts chapter 2, you have a description of how that looked, or what that looked like amongst the whole group at the end of chapter 2. In fact, if you just turn back, you find that. you find it's a very similar thing. And verse 44, All that believed were together they'd all things common they sold their possessions they continued daily with one accord and so on they were praising god and you've got this description of how being filled by the spirit of god impacts the whole company this is what it looks like and you've got the same again here a similar type of um progression of thought and so they are filled with the spirit and they're preaching with boldness and then you come into verse number 32 to verse 37. Now we're going to have two main ideas in this section. One is to give to the lost and the other is to give to the found. Lost and found describe basically the two character, character groups in this section. And it's about giving to both. Giving to those who are lost and giving to those who have been found. Lost to God, found by God. Lost in their sins, forgiven and reconciled to God. Two distinct (coughs) groups. And the pace of the text increases by the use of the word and. If you look at this, um, certainly in the translation that I'm reading from, the, the word and appears repeatedly. So you get, for example, verse number 31, and when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. You come into verse 32, and the multitude of them that believed and so on. And then you come into verse 33, and with great power, and great grace was upon them all. And so it's it's as if the text speeds up by the use of the word and. So one thing leads into another. And it begins to gather pace as you go down. Now also notice this from verse 31 down to verse number 37. The different characters, people, who are emphasised. Verse 31, the word they. And when they had prayed. Verse 32, the multitude of them that believed. That's another group. Verse 33. And with great power gave the apostles. Verse 33 again and great grace was upon them all verse 36 and joseph who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas. so you've got a variety of people here and groups as well so there's a lot going on so let's look at this well first of all we want to notice that in this group of people this group of people who have uh, responded in faith become christians and um, been indwelt with the spirit of god They are baptised believers. They are marked by unity and empathy. Unity and empathy. Now there's a difference between sympathy and empathy. Um, If, for example, I can be sympathetic to you even though I've got no life experience that's similar to yours. Out of common compassion and kindness... I can look at your life circumstance, whatever it may be, and I can express that compassion. I can express, you know, that sympathy, that, that sense of, of, of wanting the best for you in the circumstance. But I actually have never experienced what you've experienced. So there's a limit to sympathy, and it's limited by experience. Empathy is a deeper thing it is that I'm able to draw alongside you because I know exactly what you're going through because I've already gone through that there's a distinction between the two and when you have common experience with someone you're able to relate to them and help them in a way that very often although not always but very often when you have not had common experience you're unable To help us effectively. Being able to, this is the whole idea of why we don't have a sympathetic high priest, we have an empathetic high priest really. In that the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the reasons why he came down and he lived for 33 years on earth as a man, as a perfect man, but as a true man. And so he was brought up in a normal family. He he was brought up within an unremarkable town situation. He had a job. He ran a little family business. He knew what it was to live without doing any, any miracles whatsoever. Now that 30 year period in his life qualified him to function presently as our great high priest because he knows what it's like to lose friends. He knows what it's like to be the odd one out. He knows what it's like to do a hard day's work. He knows what it's like to be part of a community. He knows what it's like to trade in business. He knows what it's like to be in an atmosphere where all around him, there are people who have got no relationship with God. He knows all about that because he's been here and he's done it and he's experienced it. He has experiential knowledge. Therefore, he effectively can represent us before God and represent God before us. So when you've got this idea of unity and empathy, you have it here in this verse 32. Now, this looks like communism. I should say socialism. Communism is not so popular nowadays, but this looks like communism in practice, but it's not. This is gospel-driven Christian fellowship. Gospel-centred Christian communion, not communism. And they are displaying what it means to actually be in fellowship one with another as Christians. When you become a Christian, you don't enter into an experience where you're alone. You actually enter into God's family where you are connected to other Christians. You express that in a locality, that's what church is all about. You, you gather in a local church and you experience life together with other Christians. And this is on display here. They were a one heart <coughs> excuse me, and of one soul. They were bound together in their lives. There was a unity and that unity led to empathy. Uh, the puritan preacher thomas brooks wrote this discord and division become no christian for wolves to wor- to worry the lamb is no wonder but for one lamb to worry another that is unnatural and monstrous and the picture of christians as being In a flock with the Lord as the ultimate shepherd, as elders, as as shepherds, under shepherds, you would expect, and the shepherds, the elders, have got a duty to watch out for those who will come and seek to destroy and hurt and damage the flock. But the expectation is not that the flock will damage itself, that the sheep will worry the sheep. It's usually the wolf that worries the sheep. And so the norm is this, oneness. Now, this was a characteristic of the early church. Unity and oneness. Chapter 1, verse 14. Excuse me. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Chapter 2, verse 1, they were all together in one place on the day of Pentecost. Chapter 2, verse 44, all who believed were together. And this is in what's called the imperfect tense, meaning they made it a practice of gathering together and being together. Now, this is not new. God has always desired his people to come together. Old and New Testament. 2 Chronicles 30, verse 12, the hand of God was in Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. God wants his people to have one heart, one soul, to be united together, on the same page, heading in the same direction. Not uniformity, but unity. Jeremiah 32, verse 39. I will give them one heart, one way, that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. When the Lord Jesus prayed for his disciples in John chapter 17, that they may be one. This translation I'm quoting the EVSV says, Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And that classic Psalm 133. Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. They were marked by unity. But they were marked by empathy Now it's interesting That expression that you get in verse 32 They had all things common That word common Is actually from the same root word As the word fellowship And expresses the same thing Fellowship is about sharing It's about partnership It's about having things in common And they knew what that was in their lives In those early days It's one of the great features Of Christian uh, fellowship, uh, unity and empathy. When you read from Acts 1 through, there are these things in common. There are the Lord Jesus in common. they are the Gospel in common. The Apostles doctrine in common. The Lord's Supper. The prayer life was in common. They rejoiced in the Lord in common. And if you've got all of that in common then this flows out of that. This is not to achieve it. This is an expression of it. So this is not um, good works in order to obtain favour and to be in a right relationship with God. This is good works that flow out of being in favour with God and a right relationship with God. And it's a smaller thing, maybe even a small thing, I don't know, to hold the material goods in common when their spiritual realities were held in common. So the big things in their life they held in common, so therefore the smaller things in their life they also held in common. Now you get examples of this when you go through the New Testament. For example, the Macedonian believers, who Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians 8 when he's speaking about giving and the need to give. (coughs) He speaks of Macedonian believers who gave out of their deep poverty to other believers who were suffering persecution back in in, in Judea, in Israel. At Philippi, Paul acknowledges that they sacrificially gave to support his ministry. You see, to give what you have earned, to give what belongs to you, is a sacrifice. It's yours. There is no compulsion in these people. They're not instructed to do it. There's no demand to do it. It's an, it's an outflow of their spiritual reality and relationship. And so they hold their possessions as not solely for themselves, but for the benefit of all. They all things common. Now, it's evident that we'll come on to what that doesn't mean as well as what it does mean in due course. But notice, well, look at in verse 33, this idea of giving to the lost. So there's unity and there's empathy. Now, where there is unity and empathy amongst the Christians, there is giving to the lost and there is giving to the found. There's both. Where there is no unity and empathy, then there is no giving. Because no one can decide who to give to or what to give. And you tend to find that where there's no unity, people are inward looking, not outward looking. All their energies are about what's going on in and not what's going on out. And so you get no giving to the lost. And you get no giving to the found either. You tend to find there's a lack of unity, that produces a lack of empathy. People become self-centred they become very narrow in their focus and they start clinging on with white knuckles to their resources and by resources I'm not just talking about money money's in it money's not all of it our resources are not just made up by the number in our bank account whether that's black or red, I don't know but our resources as an individual are far greater than the number in my bank account and so In me, I have resources, I have time, I have spiritual gift, I have the abilities that God gave me in relationship and energy and uh, and friendships. Uh, And yes, I've got possessions, I've got stuff. And yes, I'll have resources, financial resources. There's a whole package. And we see here that giving to the lost here was not so much about giving stuff. It says this, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. You couldn't give anything greater than that. There's two uses of the word great in the verse great power and great grace. So great power was given to them, and great grace was upon them. Now it's interesting, that word great just is the word megas, from which we get mega, which I should never use but it means something at the highest level, so superlative, something that's very impressive. So with great power, that dynamis power, that dynamite power, the power that comes from God, the power that God used to raise Christ from the dead, it's that power, gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord. Now it's interesting as well, at least I think it is, that the word gave there is not the usual word in the bible for giving it's a different word it's the idea of paying a debt it is giving to satisfy a debt you owe so here they are giving in the sense that they are seeking to discharge an obligation they're indebted in this matter This is not something that they have an option. This is something that they are compelled in themselves to do. And they do it with great power that comes from God. But they are actually paying a debt. Who are they paying a debt to? Well, Paul would see himself as a debtor to Greek and to Jew. He he would see himself as being indebted to the people that he's speaking to. And also he's indebted to God. So he's discharging a debt he owes to God for all that God's grace has given him in salvation. He has accepted that he is the servant and the Lord is his master and he will serve him and he will serve him as an unprofitable servant his whole He'll never discharge that debt, that debt of love that's been expressed to him that he owes. His good works will never outweigh grace in his life. Never but he's also a debtor to the people. He owes it to them to bring the message of the gospel to them. And he says the apostles felt the same way because with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection. Now, this is a direct answer to their prayer, their corporate prayer life and. Um, verse number well ending in verse 30 the prayer and then the effect of it in verse 31 God has answered their prayer and they're given special power to witness and special grace unbelievable grace is experienced by them all it's not just those who are witnessing they all experience this must have been some, must have been some experience to be part of that group of Christians to know God's grace being poured out. We're speaking at on, on, on Monday and this idea of grace and this idea of living within the atmosphere of grace. It's the oxygen we breathe as Christians. It's what keeps you going. It's what sustains you. It's that that brought you into salvation. It's that that keeps you going as a Christian. It's that which maintains you. It's that which keeps you. It's that which preserves you. It's that which gives you joy. Everything. It's all of God's grace. Everywhere you turn in life as a Christian, you're looking at the evidence of God's grace. Everywhere you turn. Everything you eat. Everything you wear. Everything you see. Your relationships you have. It's all of God's grace. Paul expressed this right into the, the Corinthians, and he was speaking about the fact that they get a bit proud. And he says, "What have you that you have not received? Tell me, what do you possess that you have not been given?" And the answer was nothing, zero, not even the breath that I take—that's given as well, life and health and everything. So here there are people, uh, and they are giving to the lost. What are they giving? They're telling their story. And their story is all about the Lord Jesus. It's all about the fact that he's alive. He's been raised from the dead. And they give witness to the resurrection. That very thing that caused the Sanhedrin to threaten them with violence. They say, Absolutely no way. With great power. We will obey God rather than men. We will stand and we've been charged to do this task for God. We're going to do this task for God and we're going to do it with the power that God gives us, which is the dynamic, unbelievable power of those indwelt with the Spirit of God witnessing to the resurrection of Christ. Well, if that's what they give to the lost, what do they give to the found? Or you come to verse number 34 down to verse 35 where it says this Neither was there anything or any among them that lacked. So there's no beggars amongst the Christians. Nobody's out in the street begging. No one's going hungry amongst the Christians. No one's homeless. No one's hungry. No one lacks. That's not to say that, you know, they had the same economic status. That's, that's not implied. What, what it's to say is just this, that the needs were met within the church. And they were pretty basic needs. And you see how that is done here. No social security system in those days. No government support. Exact opposite, actually. Just hostility. There's no backstop here. You're either able to provide for yourself, or you're out in the streets begging for others to give you out their own compassion. That's it. But now, if you're a Christian, you've now got a support network that you didn't have before. You are able to be taken into the care of the church. And this is what happens. So that there was none that lacked. And the way they went about it is described here. And so they're giving not to the lost but to the found. And this is what great grace looks like within a church. And mind you, great grace is required where there is great need. Because this is not natural. In fact, later on, you'll read this, that this began to cause problems very soon in the church where there was uh, funding made available for those who were widows and there was a dispute about that and it caused a problem uh, and all the rest of it and it had to have a proper administration put upon it. It wasn't all plain sailing in this area, but this is a beginning. And so they put God first, they put people second and they put their stuff third. That's the order here. God first, people second, stuff third. That should always be the order. People are more important than stuff, whatever that stuff is. And so you have this here, so that no one lacked. Now, how did they do it? Well, they used the resources they had, some had more than others, etc., For it says, for as many as were. So there obviously were people who owned some land, people who didn't own land, people who had some houses, people who didn't. There was a a variety of economic status represented in this large group of people, as there will be in any group of people. That's not bad. That's not wrong. The Bible never teaches us that we should have all the same economic status. This is not communism, I say. Far from it. And so what they do is this. As many as were possessors of lands or houses in this unique, and we'll see this, unique context, they sold them. And they brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. Now, this is the imperfect tense again. This has gone on and on, over and over. This isn't a once-off thing. And what you have is a, a remarkable thing because... You have people who are willing to sacrifice and submit. There's a sacrifice of stuff and there's a submission to spiritual authority because they give and they lay at the apostles' feet. And the apostles in this context were the spiritual authority amongst the Christians. You see, servanthood here They place themselves in service to others. Selflessness, they place the needs of others beyond the wants of themselves. And sacrifice, they give up. What was rightfully theirs. They had no um, command to do so. They weren't compelled to do so. They wanted to do so. And they did it on that basis. Someone said, this is not what yours is mine and I'll take it. It's what mine can be yours and we'll share it, is the idea. And this is emphasised when you come into the next chapter because when Ananias decides to jump on this bandwagon and do it in a bad way, and he sells his property, and he holds back some of it, and he gives some of it, and he pretends. He's, he's laying at the feet of the apostle, particularly Peter, um, the whole sale value. Peter says this to him, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? He says, well, that land remained unsold. Did it not remain yours? He said, look, before you sold that land and came with the money, it was yours. No one was taking it from you. No one was asking you for it. It was yours by right. So this seems to have been a temporary situation um, amongst the Christians here in Jerusalem. Remember this, that 3,000 souls have been saved. Remember this, that many of them had travelled up for the Feast of Pentecost and left behind their lands and their families and so on. And they had come up and they had saved there and they hadn't got home. And therefore there's a unique, unusual situation where you've got people living in this kind of dramatic, intense, unusual time together, uh, and the church is thousands large. So there's need there that will settle down as time goes on. But it's an immediate need, and it's met by a dramatic response from within the group. But mind you, as that settles down and you read the epistles, the principle that you see within this dramatic situation remains. First John 3 and 17 expresses it. Whoever has this world's goods sees his brother in need, shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? There it is. So that would be once things settle down into the normal rhythm of life, this is what you know we've seen in Acts 4, this is what it looks like in the daily rhythm. Of normal life. Whoever has. Stuff. Goods. You see your brother in need. And. You shut your heart to that need. That's an evidence that the love of God is not in you. That's a big thing isn't it. When you harden your heart to someone's need. When you've got the means. To help that's so unchristlike it's so ungodly you know we, we think perhaps things are unchristlike and ungodly and to be honest with you they may be but sometimes well but this is this is so obvious like unchristlike because he saw our need he was the only one who could meet it and he gave everything he impoverished himself in order for us to be enriched. So the principle has been seen in the life of the Lord Jesus, and that's why I think John says that so ungodly, so unchristlike, um, if we behave in a different way from that. When might have said this: we've been given time, talent, resources that are to be used for the good of others and for the glory of God. We're not to love money and use people. We're to use money as a way to love people. Let me repeat that. We're not to love money and use people. We're to use money as a way to love people. And the only way to do that is the grace of God. It's not natural, it's the grace of God. Psalm 24 verse 1 says this, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Ultimate ownership of all things doesn't belong to us anyway. We have stewardship. He has the rights. We have the responsibility in relation to what we possess. And if you were to go into this even further, in the New Testament you discover this, that God's expectation is not ridiculous. It's not unfair it's not unrighteous. He's not asking people to beggar themselves in order to just make someone's life a wee bit better than otherwise it is. To lift economic status of someone beyond okay to brilliant. It's not that's not the idea. The idea is to do what you can with what you have. To see that what you have is where God has put you and it may be different from someone else, more or less, doesn't matter. That's where God has you. So there's no expectation that everyone is going to be able to do this to the same degree. There's no expectation in Scripture. In fact, it's the opposite. In Acts 11 verse 29, the disciples each according to their ability determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. No one can do everything, but everyone can do something. That's the idea. Everyone can do something. And other writers are reading through this uh, this morning. We're called to be contributors, not just consumers. And responsibility is always tied to ability. Not beyond it, but within it. You say, well, okay, well, in case we missed the point, we have an example given to us at the end of the chapter. The Bible teaches, generally speaking, in two ways. We're given exhortations and they were provided with examples. So you're given the kind of um, instruction and then you're given someone to look at to say, okay, that's, that's actually how it happened. That's what it looks like. And you've got lots of character studies in the Bible that do that very thing for us. We've got one here just mentioned, and he'll be mentioned 25 times in the book of Acts. He's an important figure increasingly as the narrative continues. But we're introduced to the man who was known by the disciples as Barnabas. That was the name they gave to him. Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of encouragement, the son of consolation. He was a Levite. He came from Cyprus. And he did this. He had land. Interesting, as a Levite, he shouldn't really have had land in Israel. He may have had land in Cyprus. Um, we don't know where the land was, but whatever it was, he sold it and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. There is no glorification of Barnabas here. He's simply given as an example of someone who did this. And I think it's important that he did it because he was known as a son of encouragement. How encouraging it was to see this happen. Encouraging for those who their needs met. Encouraging for the apostles to see the spiritual exercise of those Christians who were moved by God to meet the needs of others. How encouraging for the person who received the gift As of from the Lord, to realise that God cared for them and was meeting their need through his people. Son of encouragement. It just means this, it's almost like encouragement was his father and he was his offspring. Son of usually means character. This was the person who was just characterised by encouragement. And here is how we meet him. Because a son of encouragement, someone who is an encourager, is generous. 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 Don't just think about money when we think about generosity. Generosity sometimes is the hardest thing to see within us in in areas that have nothing to do with finance. Generous in spirit. Generous with our capacity uh, of forgiveness and of grace. Generous in all these areas of character and life. Not, not narrow, not small, not, not constricted, but generous. This is what he was like. But we do see it here in relation to his possessions. He was generous. And he was encouraging. That word encouragement is the word paraclete from which the Holy Spirit has one of his titles. And it literally means to come alongside and to put courage into someone. No, you have this word encourage. The word encourage means courage in. And the idea of encouragement is to put courage into someone. That's where the word encouragement comes from. If you are an encourager, you give people courage. You just think about that actually. And so it's interesting that it's not, you don't give people tears. That's not where the word comes from. Because tears are temporary, and yes, they help someone feel better, but they don't necessarily help someone get up and step forward into the situation again, to go on. Encouragement may involve tears, may involve lots of things, but they're all to come and inject courage to go on to stand up when they're sitting down, to, to step forward and they want to step back, to be able to face the reality of their existence and life, to have courage and encourage you by drawing alongside. This is what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit, when you sin, doesn't come alongside you and say, well, you know, I can understand that and, you know, let's talk about the reasons why and let's, you know, let's make you feel better about the situation you're in. The Spirit of God, who's the paraclete, is the one who brings us courage. Courage is not in the sense of a kind of um, macho type of thing. Courage is not even a lack of fear. In fact, courage that denies fear is no courage at all. Courage is the ability with what you know and what you recognize and assess being able to step forward: courage, with your fears, with that anxiety, of being able to step forward. And Barnabas was the sort of man that enabled the people of God to go on, to go on in the things of the Lord. Yes, they probably felt better, but that wasn't the main point. The main point was there was progress. And one great example of him giving courage was by being generous. It caused the people to on. You imagine you were sitting there with nothing in Jerusalem. You imagine as a result of coming to faith in Christ, your family have cut you off, you've been disinherited, you've lost your job, you've got no property because you don't own any, you're sitting in the gutter, you've nothing... Apart from your newfound faith in Christ. You're a Christian and you've nothing else. Barnabas sees you, sells his land, gives it to the apostles. The apostles come to you and say, I don't know if you know a man called Barnabas, but he sold his land and with what we've got, we're able to help you and house you and feed you. That's what it meant in Acts chapter 4. It was like that. And that Christian can go on. He's encouraged. He's not going to go back. And so he's a son of encouragement. There's a whole, um, well, there's lots of kind of uh, scriptures you could refer to about Barnabas being a son of encouragement through the action. Meet him time and time again. It's interesting as well, he comes from Cyprus. I don't know if you've been holidaying in Cyprus. I've never been holidaying in Cyprus, but um, he comes from Cyprus. There were two categories of Jews. There was the Jews that were the Hebrew Jews living in Judea and in Israel. And there were the Greek Jews, the uh, Hellenistic Jews, as they were called. And they lived all over the world, the diaspora. They were scattered. Barnabas was one of them. By the way, as was the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul came from Tarsus in modern-day Turkey. He wasn't born in Jerusalem and lived. He was, he, was, he was one of these Hellenistic Jews. And they seemed to have something that drew them together because they served God together for a while. And it's interesting that they went out to their people, the Hellenistic Jews, wherever they travelled, and ultimately the Gentiles, with the gospel. Barnabas. Very quickly. It was a difficult time very difficult time to be a generous Christian there was a progressive violence in the society threats in this chapter imprisonment in chapter 5 floggings in chapter 5 and ultimately death in chapter 7 things were heating up and violence was in the increase and in that atmosphere Barnabas puts his money his, mouth his encouragement began with this very public statement of Christ being his Lord and Saviour, no matter what it cost him. Here's the lesson. One of three quick lessons. Here's the lesson. If you want to be a Barnabas, an encourager, you need to realise this. I'm quoting. In a need when it is not culturally appropriate or cool or whatever language you want to use to be a professing Bible-believing Christian, the most encouraging thing you can do is to stand up and be public about your faith in that environment. That's encouraging. What do I mean? Gives courage to others. Gives courage to others. Secondly, he was a selfless character, there's nothing in it for Barnabas what he did makes no economic sense at all yet he's living out the gospel of Jesus Christ who for our sakes, being rich became poor that we through his poverty might be rich, he believes the gospel, how do we know? because he lives the gospel that's how we know that's how we know he believes it he's actually living it this is the gospel. We had this a bit in James the other week there when we were talking about uh, true religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, In the end of James chapter 1, is not to preach great sermons or to know your Bible inside out or anything like that. That's all great and good and well. But actually to minister to the needs of the most vulnerable in society, the widows and the orphans. That's the expression through Christianity and then thirdly he had a submissive heart and he had submitted to the spiritual authority within the church and was willing to trust them to use the money well that's a big thing to do, it's a big responsibility if you're in that position as well when people give you that trust and if you want to be a Barnabas an encourager then these are three things to think about that public testimony that sacrificial selfless way of thinking and that submission to spiritual authority in your life let's just pray give thanks for what we've read and also for the food